welcome back to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, welcome back to this week's episode. It is the first week of February officially, which still is just mind-blowing that it's 2022, let alone the second. It, we're recording on 2-2 of 22, so there's too many twos. Um, <laughs> but in the in the spirit of, we kind of talked a couple weeks ago about regenerative agriculture, and it stemmed a lot more around, I would say, beef cattle and that sort of thing. And so um, this week, I decided I thought it'd be fun to talk with um, Tanya Hibbler um, with the Idaho Dairy Association. We were, I would say, roommates or office mates yeah. for a little while, and she has so much so much knowledge on on this topic and has done not only a lot of nutrient management plan writing but a lot of research um on some of this stuff in the dairy industry so thanks tanya for joining us and if you want to just give a brief introduction about yourself and what you're up to perfect well hi thanks for having me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, my name is tanya hibbler and i work for the idaho dairymen's association as their environmental services director um, we're like a two man environmental services team. So Megan Satterwhite is often my, um, sidekick or I'm her <laughs> sidekick, however you want to do it <laughs> or two peas in a pod. Um, but we work on the environmental issues surrounding, well, not necessarily issues, but anything environmental with a dairy. So if a dairyman has a challenge or, um, you know, just wants someone to help keep track of their books or a dairyman comes to us with an environmental question, you know, we, we fund a lot of research with our organization. So that's just some of the spaces that we work in a little bit. Um, my background is actually plant science. And so I didn't ever expect to get into, you know, animal industries. I personally, you know, I grew up on a beef farm and I was like, I'm never going to work with cows, you know, <laughs> screw that. I'm going to go work with plants. And, um, yeah, here I am. I get to, I get to do both though, because with the env- environmental side, you know, that's basically a nice way of saying manure. And so, yes. um, I get to work with the plants after they've been digested. So it works <laughs> out, I guess. Um, I don't mind. <laughs> and you get to grow more plants with it. <laughs> yeah. And it's a nice fertilizer. So. that's kind of about me (laughs) well thanks for introducing yourself Tanya and um when I worked with Valiant Ag Professionals I used to say that my job was literally shit so (laughs) yeah Yeah. someone's got to do it (laughs) and a lot of times when you find yourself in those sticky icky situations you uh I always say you better laugh or you'll cry because it makes them a lot more fun. And sometimes it's not that fun. <laughs> it's all about the, the people you work with and, and, and the ultimate solution to the problem or being able right. to help somebody too yeah. along the way. Yeah. Um, well, to kind of dive into, to the episode a little bit, what, how would you desi- define sustainability and now regenerative is starting to be thrown around too. What What's your interpretation of those words? Yeah. So, I mean, coming from an ag background, like instinctually, I think of sustainability as like capable of continuing on. Um, I think now it's kind of had the environmental 
friendly spin. So, you know, if you're more sustainable, you're more environmentally friendly. But I mean, to me, I think the root of the word is just being able to continue on doing something and, and being productive at it. Um, kind of same with regenerative. I mean, it sounds like regenerative kind of bothers me more because it sounds like the status quo isn't already regenerative, um, but it kind of is. I mean, it, it kind of has the same theme to it of continuing on and, and being able to do something over and over again. Um, I would say the spin on regenerative ag now is kind of more of being able to do more with less, um, less inputs, um, less energy, and, and however you wanna analyze that. That's kind of my personal views on those, those two words. No, I think those are, those are good definitions, and especially as they relate to to confined animal feeding operations or, um, dairy specifically, I think it's hard, you know, those buzzwords get around organic and right natural right. or grass finished beef or organic dairies, you right. know? And so how, how do you see the dairy industry embracing some of those pressures? Yeah. So I think that, I mean, to kind of, I guess, further define like the continuing on every dairyman wants to pass his operation onto the next generation. So to be sustainable enough to pass it to your next generation is, is one thing. Um, that's stuff that we're already doing and have been for, for years, as far as like, you know, the organic or the trendier, um, spins on sustainability. I think that, um, it used to be that you did what your dad did because your dad did it and your grandpa did it. And, you know, that was why you did things. But I would say things are changing more now to be like, well, my neighbor down the street tried this and it worked for him. And, you know, I'm going to get some good credit for this and maybe I should try it too. And so I think we see more adoption of practices that way than maybe we hadn't in the past. Um, and it might be another generation coming onto the farm and with new ideas and, and people are maybe a little more open to explore it because there is so much conversation about it. What kinds well, of, oh, go ahead. Nope. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> what kinds of practices are you seeing being adopted that, that fall in the category of sustainable, sustainable and, and regenerative ag? Yeah. So, I mean. A really simple one that I would say every dairyman, pretty close to every dairyman's doing now is double cropping. Um, and I would guess that maybe 10 years ago, no one was doing that. No one was planting triticale before their corn and, and harvesting two crops in the same year. And I think that was something that maybe took off because, you know, so-and-so down the street was trying it. And, and that's a really awesome practice because one, I mean, you are providing a cover through the winter. And so a lot of the cover cropping ideas apply there. And so you can get some of that cover cropping credit, but then you're also providing yourself, you know, even more forage than you were before. And so that reduces your feed input costs. Um, that's just one that comes to mind right away. But another way, like dairymen are the ultimate upcyclers right? Like there's so many food industries here in Idaho that we use a lot of food waste byproducts. So 
the other day I was sampling feed and there's potatoes in it, you know, or there's beet pulp there. And these would, you know, if we were in a metropolitan area, they'd probably go to the landfill, but you know, we have more cows than we do people. We can feed those to cows and they can use it and we can like base, you know, uh, whole rations off of, you know, some of these different byproduct feeds that not everyone has access to. Well, and it keeps, it keeps it out of the landfill, like you said right. too. And it, it, it's works repurposing. It works for both all, in, all people involved are benefiting from it yeah. as well. Yeah. So there's like some things that I would say dairy is already really good at. Um, but maybe a lot of people don't know those things. And it's just trying to educate people on, you know, what our current practices are and then what do we want to go to in the future? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that every farmer has his own goals and I think every one of those goals relates back to sustainability and regenerative ag and being able to make your farm the biggest success that you can. Yeah. So what, you know, you also do some research or are helping fund research and making sure right. things are moving forwards. What are some of your big projects you're working on right now? Yeah, so IDA has a, a big history of funding research projects with, you know, any anybody who wants to conduct, you know, a research project that answers our questions. So in the past, we had a big study that we did with USDA ARS um, that looked at the long-term effects of manure on not traditional, non-traditional dairy system. So crops that we weren't growing on dairies, but grow around Southern Idaho. So we, we applied manure to barley, um, wheat, sugar beets, and potatoes and evaluated, you know, it was kind of like a myth busters study. You know, what can we find? How can we cut out other people's excuses for <laughs> using our manure, you know, stuff like that. And it, it was really um, a good success. We learned a lot of good information from that study. Um, and then we actually rolled those same plots into another long-term study. So that study was eight years. The next six years, we plan on um, looking at the phosphorus drawdown. So here in Idaho, we're dairies are regulated on phosphorus levels in their soils. And um, sometimes if you have a lot of manure application year after year, you see a buildup of that. So we tried to get those plots to see a buildup and so that we can take this next study and look at how long it takes to draw that back down and what kind of cropping rotations, what kind of innovative crops maybe that we're not using already are good at drawing down that phosphorus and and mining that from the soil. So that's one project. Um, We also have partnered with University of Idaho to, um, well, we bought some of the land and then University of Idaho bought some of the land for a university dairy. And on this dairy, we really hope to research um, some stuff around lagoon liners and um, manure storage. And then also some of these like field application, um, lagoon water application on some of the cropping systems and, and things like that. So we're really hoping for that dairy to be a center for environmental research. And um, it's in the heart of our dairy industry here in Southern Idaho. So we're really excited about that one. And then um, 
just recently, we just started another project with ARS looking at the methane producing potential of manure um, and kind of evaluating, you know, some of the some of those values that they use for RNG products or projects <laughs> are from the 1970s. And so we're just looking to update a lot of the values that that people use all the time. Um, Get just, some more practical numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Update so book values, I we guess. We kind of, um, I mean, if, if we have a question or or an area that our dairymen come to us time and time again, we will try to find somebody who will be willing to research that. And so, yeah, one of our biggest questions that we kind of did, uh, like recently we went through um, priorities, research priorities with some Western organizations. And the top one was like carbon markets. I mean, we have so many questions about carbon markets and carbon sequestration and how do you quantify that? And like, there's all these soil health tests and which one is, you know, right, you know, which one actually tells you things. So we, that would probably be our number one research priority for the future. Um, moving forward, it's something that we want to learn a lot about. Nice. Can you give a little more description or background about carbon markets as they relate to dairies or cafes for our listeners? Yeah. So carbon marketing is kind of like, it kind of fits within the realm of the buzzword things. And it's, it's one of those things that no one really knows a lot about, but because carbon is such a concern in the environment, as far as greenhouse gases go. So we have three primary greenhouse gases, which is, um, nitrogen oxide, nitrous oxide. Yeah. I think. One of the two. N2O. <laughs> and, um, methane, which is CH4 and um, CO2, which is our main, you know, atmosphere. Um, and so we look at all those gases on a greenhouse gas equivalent of CO2. And then we, you know, if you can store any of those greenhouse gases within your soil on a CO2 equivalence level, kind of getting into the weeds here, but <laughs> then, you know, you can market that and say, I took this much out of the atmosphere for the greenhouse effect. And, um, you know, other people are willing to buy those credits because they can't store them. They don't have soils. They don't have fields. They don't farm. They can't store them like you can. And so carbon marketing is kind of what they've called that concept. And, um, it's kind of a big gray box. <laughs> so there's a lot of questions and like, how do you, how do you quantify the carbon in your soil and how do you assign that a value and what it, what it might be valued to me might be different than my neighbor down the road and, and why. So things like that um, would be really interesting to learn. So does the carbon market and carbon sequestration feed into any of the net zero talk that the yeah. dairy industry has been into and what's, what are the connections? Yeah, it does there? a lot. So kind of two things. So relating back to the research that we've done, um, there was a different study that we did with ARS and, um, they looked at cover cropping, no till conventional tillage, um, and then manure application and no manure application and compared all those variables against each other and found that the, the 
greatest carbon sequestration came from manure application. So if you want to build the carbon in your soils, the fastest way to do it is by applying manure. With that, we, we know this tidbit of information and we have this net zero initiative of getting to um, greenhouse gas neutrality by 2050. So we have a 30 year runway and this all kind of links up together because we really want to make sure that whatever steps we have to take to get to net zero as an industry or as a dairy farmer by himself, he has to have some other incentive or some other economic reason to do that. And so carbon market kind of opens up the possibility of being paid for some of these practices and being paid to implement some of these um, more expensive technologies. And so a carbon market would be just one revenue stream that you could utilize to get to net zero. Very cool. And when you talk about, you know, these technologies, are you referring to like a digester or covering right. lagoons or? Right. So there are four main areas that we've identified on our farms as, you know, groupings of where to target our emissions. So you have your your feed production areas, um, that would be your fields. And then you have your um, manure handling. That is one group, whether that's in your lots or your freestall or your lagoons. And then you have um, enteric methane, which is your cow's burps and farts and all the other good <laughs> gases that come out. And then um, what's the fourth one? There's one more. Why can't I think of it? The lagoon systems? Is that? No, you... there's manure, feed. Do, 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 do. Oh, energy. Duh. Oh, the yeah. easy one. <laughs> um, energy on your farm. And so your energy production is, is the fourth category. And so in each of those categories, there are different technologies or things you could do. So like for energy production, you would think of like solar panels and um, different things like that. Um, RNG, which would be you know, natural gas. And if you're producing that, if you can actually plumb it back in and, and heat or do all your farm functions off of RNG, that would be one way. But then on the manure side, would that would be where a digester comes in or um, some other technology that would help remove. So we found that the solid portion of your lagoon water or the, your settling basins are typically where you find the most methane emissions. And so if we could do something about the solids in our lagoons, that would help um, mitigate a lot of our stuff. And so we, you know, any technology that helps remove solids. So you could have something as basic as like a sloped screen, the water running over the top and the solids sloughing off the side um, to some of the fancier stuff, like, I mean, a centrifuge or some drum presses or, they have all sorts of different kind of mechanical separations, but then there's also um, different groups that are looking to use worms to break down the organic matter and then, you know, clean up your water. So there's a bunch of different technologies there as well. But they all have a dollar value. <laughs> but they are, all have a dollar value. And some of our guys are, uh, I guess, not necessarily against them, but they always say, you know, gravity never breaks down. So a gravity system may not be perfect, but a, a dairyman wears a lot of hats. You know, I am always amazed at our dairyman because 
one day they're the, you know, the nutrition guy, the next day they're working with the vet, the next day they're working with me on the manure side. And then they have some fertilizer salesmen come in, you know, to sell them this product and that product. And they rely a lot on good advice from their advisors. And so wearing so many different hats, I mean, it gets to be a lot and, and they're really impressive how they tackle all these different things at the same time. So all of these different technologies, I mean, then you also have to be, you know, good at running that equipment and finding, you know, somebody to fix it when it breaks down. Or if you're going to put in a digester, all of a sudden you have to be good at the energy sector as well. I mean, that's a whole different branch from dairying. So there's a lot of different components that go into dairying that maybe when I was at home on my dad's beef operation, I never knew how complex it was <laughs> and my eyes have been opened <laughs> and I, I feel for these guys. I mean, they have a lot of information flying at them all the time. Mm-hmm. So something like net zero could seem pretty frustrating. Um, but we've, we've talked a lot with our dairymen and, and we see it has a big potential to be another revenue stream to help, um, you know, find other revenue streams, help pay for some of these technologies. And I think a lot of these technologies, they want to implement anyway, like no dairyman's going to be, you know, against improving his farm. It's just having the economic capability to do so is a lot of times the the biggest factor. Yeah. I was just going to ask what the feeling out in the field is from dairymen about these technologies. And it sounds like they're mostly positive and being interested in adopting them from you. Um, I mean, at first it was pretty shocking because it was like, wait, how how do we even achieve that? Right. Like, how are we going to do this? We're all like, what, you know, confused. And I think we've got our heads wrapped around it enough now. I mean, there is a reason why we gave ourselves 30 years to figure it out. Um, We're only in year two. So they announced this in 2020. And I would say, in two years, the sentiment has changed quite a bit. I think dairymen have kind of accepted that this is the path we're on. And if we can, you know, find some benefit here, then we're all going to be better off in the long run. I mean, if we can find another revenue source and, you know, have a product that people want to buy, that's even better. And we can, you know, make big improvements on our farms. And we can say, you know, we have a, a lesser environmental footprint. That's, those are all positive things. And I think our dairymen have come to recognize a lot of those points. I mean, on the days when it's frozen or it was frozen and it all thawed and it's muddy and you have a mess or, you know, your chiller equipment broke down, don't bring up net zero. <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, I think that we're, we're rolling with the punches and trying to make it work for us the best we can and our farms. Well, and I'm the dairyman, as long as it'll pencil once almost potable water coming out the back end, you know, to recycle and reuse mm-hmm. and, and the solids that they can truck further away, because right. that goes back to regenerative and sustainability right. and being able to to continue to farm and dairy mm-hmm. in that same location. Well, and I, those are all things that no one's going to say no to. It's just, how do we get there? And I think that's been the biggest hurdles up until this point anyway. Net zero just kind of gave us an excuse to figure all that out. Mm-hmm. And then like kind of with all the, like the sustainability buzz, even at, like just the grocery store, I think that 
people not within the industry, but outside the industry are like, Hey, you know, the dairy industry supposedly is this greatest, you know, polluter and we need to help them fix this. And so it's actually brought a lot of interest from other industries like municipality people or, um, other waste treatment systems. And, and they're trying to figure out if this will help dairy too. And so it's kind of been positive in, in that aspect. I mean, I think some of them realize the challenges once they jump into the space, but it has brought a lot of new ideas. And I think those ideas will continue to grow and help us get there in 30 years. Yeah. No. And once you, once you look back at the two years, yeah. you still have 28 years to go. <laughs> right. Right. We might not even be calling it, zero, <laughs> yet, but you know. We'll probably, we'll be on to greener pastures by then, but <laughs> right now, I mean, this is definitely front of mind on a lot of different areas of agriculture too. Well, very cool. Well, Tanya, it's been wonderful having you on today. Do you have any, um, last parting thoughts you want to leave listeners with, um, any words of wisdom? Can, um, it can be around sustainability or it can be around anything agriculture in general. <laughs> Okay. Well, I always, I mean, I, I grew up on a farm. I have a farming background. And so I, I relate to the farming stuff. Um, but I also have a plant mind. So keep this in mind when, when someone finds like a success growing, like a house plant, you know, like how proud you are of growing just this mm-hmm. one house plant. And then, you know, to relate that to being the farmer, imagine growing so much food that you can feed so many people and, and how proud you are of that. I think a lot of times we attack farmers as like bad guys or they're, they're have bad intentions, but a lot of it, I mean, you have to be passionate to stick it out. I mean, you have to have a love for this stuff. And so I always try to relate it to people in that way. Like if you can feel so proud of one houseplant. Imagine what it feels like growing so much food for so many other people. And I would, I would have to say that's probably how a farmer feels. That's, I think that's a great, great analogy or, or comparison. Um, last question, if listeners have any more questions for you, where can they find you? Yeah. So my contact information can be found on the Idaho Dairyman's website. So if you Google Idaho Dairyman's um, association, or you just type in idahodairymans.org. You'll find us. Perfect. Well, thank you again for joining us. And we thank you listeners for tuning in to this week's episode of the millennial ag podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or email us at talk to us at millennial until next week. We are millennial ag.